Listener Production. Extending out from the coastline is the continental shelf. This is the part of our continent that is underwater. At the edge of the shelf is the shelf break, and descending deep into the ocean beyond that is what's known as the continental slope. The layers of sediment on the continental slope were formed millions of years ago, each one telling us the story of when they were made, how they were made, and who or what might have made a life on them when they were once above water. Although rich in beauty and history, the precarious and unpredictable nature of the shelf sediment could pose a significant tsunami threat to our coastal communities. With underwater landslides being just as dangerous in the water as they are above it. And investigating that potential was something Associate Professor Hannah Powers' students at the University of Newcastle were doing with mapping data collected over a decade ago by the University of Sydney. But they quickly realised they didn't have enough. And so we put together a proposal and you have to make a bid for ship time. It took us a couple of goes, but we got there, so we were awarded our ship time. That was in 2020 we found out that we had this ship time. The ship Hannah is referring to is the CSIRO research vessel, the RV Investigator. And in May of 2022, eight lucky undergraduate students set sail as part of a new research study in collaboration with the University of Sydney, Geoscience Australia and the CSIRO, supported by a grant of sea time from the CSIRO Marine National Research Facility. We were standing on the shore in Hobart, just looking up, all of our students, like, all our jaws hitting the ground, could not believe it. It completely towers over you. You saw the boat from, like, the, the harbour, and you're like, oh, wow, it's bigger than I thought it was going to be, so it was, it was pretty cool. It's still so vivid in my mind of, like, the pinks, purples, and the, the ocean, like, especially once we started getting up past, like, into northern New South Wales, the ocean turned, like, so, so, so blue, and... Oh, it was amazing. For the next 35 days, students Chloe and Michaela would be part of a 53-person crew making the science possible and helping researchers like Dr Michael Kinsella discover places never seen before. One of the exciting things about these voyages is you never really know what you're going to come back with. Every time we go out, uh, whether it's on small boats or or large ships uh, like the Investigator, we're mapping new areas of the Earth's surface uh, underwater that we've never seen before. Spending six weeks at sea in the name of science isn't an experience most university students get. And the work these students contributed to will inform other potentially life-saving research for decades to come. Hi, my name is Shani Wellington. I'm a Wandy Wandy and Geringer woman, and I'm from the University of Newcastle. This is The Minds Changing Lives. My name is Chloe Fitzpatrick. I'm studying a Bachelor of Environmental Science and Management and I am majoring in Earth Science. 
before studying at the University of Newcastle, Chloe had an established career in film and radio. But COVID inspired a career change. I think when I took that uh, step to do the career change and to challenge myself to really um, learn the, you know, the basics and the, and the yeah, foundations of the science part, it was a bit overwhelming. But um, it's nice to know that I think I did have it in me all along. Like yeah. I kind of took to it really nicely. And I think, yeah, my passion for it just really um, helps me get through it as well because it can be a lot. The more I'm learning about science, I think it is super creative. Chloe heard about the voyage through her lecturer, Associate Professor Hannah Power. After an overwhelming response of interest from students, Chloe was asked to come in for an interview. Yeah, they were just asking some really, you know, uh, good questions around, you know, trying to gauge how, why we're interested in how we would go on the boat. You know, it is like remote working for six weeks, Mm. so... It's quite intense. And, and what were your feelings? Like once you got a bit of those, that information, were you nervous, excited? Because like you said, it is an actual workplace scenario. You know, it's not an exercise on a piece of paper or something. You're actually signing up to go away for six weeks. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Like I lived and worked in remote uh, Central Australia for four years. So, you know, they spoke a lot about that in the interview, like isolation, remote living, not being able to like contact your family whenever because we had really limited internet. You know, you can't just go to the shops. You can't Mm. pop out, meet a friend for a coffee, forget all that. (laughs) But I felt quite confident. I've been isolated for many moon and, you know, it's quite an experience. I grew to love it. Uh, So I felt okay in that sense. But actually, I'm like really scared of boats. No. (laughs) Yeah. Chloe. I really, really was. (laughs) So I was like, yes, fine with the remote stuff. But Gosh, I'm like terrified of boats. Oh, sorry, a six-week boat trip? <laughs> Sign me up, says the boat phobe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I don't know why. I, I think because I hadn't been on many before. Yeah. I went on one. I went on a dive boat. I was very, very lucky up in the Great Barrier Reef. So that was my one experience, but it was a much smaller boat, you know. And I was scared then too, so I just didn't know. Chloe was chosen and her fear of boats was quickly overcome when she saw just how big the investigator was. The students were split into day and night shifts and Chloe was assigned to the night shift, so midnight to midday. We had some pretty exciting shifts because dredging would happen at night. It was really exciting because quite a couple of times we'd get to the shift and, like, the dredge would be physically coming up on deck as, like, we're waking up and still climbing up the stairs. And, yeah, everyone's, like, getting into the go position and you have to be quite, like, efficient and quick with the dredges because it's quite often that they come up on board. We can't move until that stuff's come off deck and then they move to another place and drop another dredge down. The dredge, it's a big, massive... It, it looked to me like a, you know, a massive like basketball hoop going off the back. It's like a big chain net and it has two pipes on the bottom. One's an open pipe, one's a closed pipe. And then they, it's really actually super strategic and interesting how they figure out how to do the dredges. Mm. But essentially they're dragging this, um, you know, this big basket and pipe along the floor, not for too long, and then they pull it back up. And that's when we come in, they drop it down onto the deck and we come in with, you know, mud buckets and shovels and we're just, like, getting so muddy. I remember, like, straight away the 
You put your arm into the pipe and it's as long as your arm. So you're like trying to pull out all the last little bits of the mud. Where does Chloe finish and dredge begins? Yeah, exactly. Getting so muddy. And yeah, you know, that was that was always really exciting. Dredging was just one of the data collecting activities the students were doing on board. And it might not sound significant, but the sediments being pulled from the ocean floor were informing what materials the seabed was made from, how stable they were, what organisms lived among them, all critically important to the research mission Associate Professor Hannah Power has been on throughout her career. Hi, I'm Hannah Power. I'm an Associate Professor of Coastal and Marine Science at the University of Newcastle. And for the voyage that we did in July this year, I was the alternate chief scientist. So the purpose was really to understand how the edge of our continental margin evolves over millions and millions of years. And primarily we were looking at how sediment is transported, so sands and muds and clays are transported from onshore on our continent, what we think of as our continent, out off the coastline onto the continental shelf, so they're the shallow waters around the edge of Australia, and then down the slope, so down from sort of, you know, one to 200 metres depth right down to four or five kilometre depths down into the really deep oceans. And as that sediment moves, some of it accumulates on the slope, which is the sort of steeper part of the edge of our continent. And it can build up there and it can form different types of features. And one of the particular features we were really interested in looking at were these really big submarine landslides or underwater landslides that we see scattered along the edge of our coast from about Fraser Island down to a little bit past Jarvis Bay, so quite a long stretch of our coastline. And we were interested in investigating these because we know from other events around the world that these big submarine landslides can cause tsunami. So we're interested in trying to understand how they've formed better because we see these scars, so where where landslides have occurred in the past, we wanted to know, well, where does this material end up? because that can help us or it can help inform our modelling of potential tsunami and then that helps us understand what the hazard is to communities along the east coast of Australia. And when you speak of a submarine landslide, what is that? How would you explain what's occurring to someone? So it's exactly the same as what we think of as a landslide onshore. So where material, so sediment, sand, mud, dirt slips down or goes, gets moved down with gravity. But in comparison to landslides above the water, underwater landslides tend to be much, much bigger. We're talking about features that are up to 10 kilometres across, 25 kilometres in length. You know, that would cover a significant area of Newcastle if you were to map it out. So these are really, really big features that have moved cubic kilometres of material. And what impact would an underwater landslide have on a coastal community like Newcastle? So it really depends on how the landslide moves. If it moves as one big solid mass of material and it moves really, really fast, it could generate a wave that would be a few metres tall, which doesn't sound like a lot. We have waves that are a few metres tall off our coast really regularly. But the difference between the sort of waves that we see on the coast every day and a tsunami is that the wave doesn't stop after about 10 seconds. You know, it just keeps coming. And so if we were to have one of these big submarine landslides occur and it was to go in that very, very dramatic way, 
we could see a tsunami that could inundate areas of our coastlines and around our estuaries, so the low-lying areas around our estuaries. The 1998 Itapi tsunami in Papua New Guinea that was caused by a submarine landslide killed 2,000 people and destroyed a number of villages. So they can be really, really devastating. Uh, We've seen in, you know, the last sort of 100 or so years that uh, tsunami and submarine landslides have caused the breakage of submarine cables. So, you know, these are the communication cables that give us the, you know, internet and phone connections to other countries. But in Australia, what we would likely see is some, depending on the size, some localised inundation at the coastline. So in in low-lying areas along the coast and particularly around our estuaries, um, we would see water in areas where we don't normally see water. Mm. For the smaller tsunami, we might see things that look more like really unusual currents. So things like, you know, in our estuaries and harbours, where we normally don't experience very fast currents, we might see things like boats being pulled off moorings and so on. So those kind of effects are what we see with a smaller tsunami. Unlike Chloe, student Michaela grew up in the water. Dad put me in nippers since I was young. Always hated it at the time, but now I'm like, oh, oh Michaela, why was you're I one so of, sad? One of those beach sprinters. Yeah, that was a or, very cool pastime, if I remember yeah. correctly. I don't know if I was that good at the running, but every time I was in the water, that was the good times. <laughs> yeah. Working on a research vessel, investigating something as serious as submarine landslides is exactly that, work with days structured around routine, science, and, of course, a little bit of fun. I was on the shift uh, midnight to midday, so basic day would look like I'd wake up around 11, have a bit of me time before um, heading upstairs. We'd have lunch, kind of catch up with the night crew between that time and talk about what they got up to on the shift the night before. Around 1pm to about 4.30, we would kind of start the main task for the day. It would either be sectioning up core, logging and sampling the core, preparing the lab for activities we might complete at the end of the day. So when we got cores, we would just, depending on the type of core, we'd send this massive big long pipe, I guess, that would travel down. It would take maybe two hours to go down, depending on how deep it was going. Yeah, that would then slowly come up and that would be full with just like all the sediment right from down the bottom. We were trying to figure out like what was down there, what the sediment was made of and try and see if that was what they were expecting or if it might have been something interesting. We've got like a lot of like sponge picules. So even though they were cool, they weren't considered like actually interesting or necessary for what we're looking. Right. But um, my, my interpretation of cool was different to what they were looking for. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> About 4.30 to 5, we'd all head up to the bow and watch sunset. It was a bit of a daily ritual for us. We had dinner about 5 to 6 p.m. And after that, we kind of just hang out and relax as a bit of a team before we would start the night activities catch up on doing some log and core samples with sift through dredge samples kind of just uh, clean up the lab ready for the night crew to come in if there wasn't really much to do we'd all head up and just watch a movie as a team for the last about hour of our shift we would just kind of hang out talk to the night crew as they came up and kind of tell them what we did in our day get them ready for their day and then so that was the end of the shift and then head back down to the cabin and kind of have a bit of me time just before going to bed, so watch a movie, read a book and, yeah, rinse and repeat. There's always a really exciting moment when you get your first sample back from the seafloor. It might not be the most exciting stuff. A lot of what we sampled was sort of grey-brown mud, but that's still really exciting, having that first sample come back on board. 
Um, you know, the first core that we got that was successful, you know, you the, the core comes back and it, it's literally a very long cylinder of stuff and it's capped off at the ends and you have to cut it up into sections. You know, um, I think our first core was about six or seven metres. So you've got these six or seven, you know, one metre lengths of tubing essentially with stuff inside and you don't know what you've got until you split it open. And so you split it longitudinally and that moment when you split it open and you find out what you've got, have you sampled into, you know, the sort of older seafloor that you were really interested in? Have you got some really interesting features? You know, we saw things like, you know, bioturbation, so where you can see where, you know, little critters have moved sediment up and down in the core. You know, those kind of things are just really, really exciting to see for the first time. Sediment sampling was just one half of this research mission. Mapping the sea floor was the other. Dr Michael Kinsella is an expert in this field and he was one of the lead investigators on the ship. My focus, I guess, has been on coastal dynamics and coastal dynamics is how these coastal environments change over time, uh, but particularly the role of sea level change. What a lot of people probably don't realise is for most of the recent geological past, so the past several hundred thousand of years, sea level has been generally a lot lower than it is today. So the coastline was far out on the continental shelf. And in those times, uh, Indigenous uh, peoples would have been living out on those environments. So my particular fascination is, is studying how the coastline migrates and evolves through time in response to these sea level changes. How does one go about mapping the seafloor? So it depends uh, what uh, water depth we're working in. What happened recently with some advances in technology is the ability to fly a plane along the coast and use lasers, lasers that go through the water and, and measure the water depth in very high resolution. Further out to sea, into deeper water, uh, we use what's called multi-beam echo sounding. So this is a similar remote sensing principle, but using sound rather than uh, light and lasers to map uh, in very high detail, the seafloor as the vessel goes about a, a pattern that we call mowing the lawn. So when we're out in deeper water, we're mapping, you know, kilometres of seafloor you know, at a time as we as we go along in the ship. So it's uh, it's very much a, an interactive and, and real time operation to to go about this work. What you see on the screen when you're mapping the seafloor can be captivating. If you imagine a regular topography map with different colours indicating the size and height of mountains, the same type of data is collected and displayed, but of the sea floor. Waves passing over soft sediment can make an area look rippled, just like the ripples you might see on the bottom of a riverbed. There are also underwater dunes that have been preserved, hardened like cement during the last glacial maximum period when sea levels were over 100 metres below what they are today. And these look strikingly like the sand dunes we see today up at Stockton Bight with ridges and hollows exactly like modern dunes. So it's, it's quite fascinating to see these drowned uh, paleo environments, we call them, and think, 
oh well that was the dune system and that was the beach face there and and people would have been walking up and down this coastline it was probably a highway for for people connecting with each other so you know the the um the sort of human history in that environment is is fascinating to to think about as well there was a moment when i was helping do a bit of the data cleaning so when we were mapping with the echo sounder the multi-beam the raw data would come in and of course there's an amazing csiro staff who oh my gosh i learned so much from them but I was just lucky enough to sit on the side and they'd send me over the data and I'd do some of the cleaning like as it comes through. And I remember Mike coming in when we were mapping Barwon Bank, which is a paleo sand dune system that is just under Fraser Island. And we were mapping it. And this area has been mapped a little bit before and it has been studied before with Mike and other scientists. You know, it's, it's known, it's a known area. Mike said to me, you know, Chloe, like this area that we are mapping right now like actually no one has seen like we've mapped and he showed me like this area and this area has been mapped but this area here like hasn't been mapped before and and then when he pointed out to me like where the sand dunes was and like you know me I was like great show me and then once you know you're just like wow that moment of yeah so we're the first people with this type of technology seeing this landscape and it's literally unfolding in front of my eyes and I'm helping like clean the data and be part of the story like it's it was absolutely incredible pretty amazing how important is it to be doing these kind of mapping and voyages like how little do we actually know about what's going on under there we know we know surprisingly little the throwaway line is always that we know more about the surface of the moon than we do about the seabed of our oceans. And this is this is still very, very true. So it's absolutely fundamental that we get out there and discover what's there and map them. And, and every time we go out, we're finding new data and knowledge that changes our perception of our modern coastline and coastal environments today without having an understanding of that over time and what's uh, you know now beneath the uh, the ocean and, and underwater it's very hard to understand our our modern coastal systems and in terms of how you know our coast might change uh, in terms of you know beaches eroding the nature of estuaries changing through time how they will change over the coming decades and centuries is is very much linked to what is actually out there on our continental shelf so is there much uh, sand out there that is part of that modern system is it all rocky reef is that rocky reef covered in organisms that are producing sediment so there's all these very fundamental questions that we're um, we're only now beginning to be able to answer in in a great level of detail because of you know improving technologies uh, in in seabed mapping and sampling. I think it was kind of love at first sight with like spatial science and these types of geographic information systems for me because yeah, like I said, I come from a, a storytelling film background where I was always visually representing landscapes, mm-hmm. like learning about all of the different ways that they're capturing this information, whether it be light or sound, you know, same in film, you work with um, light as well and sound. So it, it was already speaking my language. It was already familiar to me, but then just kind of seeing the potential and 
of this technology, especially in a time where it is important to know about, you know, paleoclimates and how our shoreline changes to environmental, you know, factors. It is important to learn about, like, you know, what's happening in our atmosphere with climate change and all of that. Like having all of these big um, challenges in front of us and seeing what this technology can do, like it just completely blew my mind. Chloe, Michaela and the six other undergrads became integral members of the crew, putting their knowledge to the test in a real-world setting. I think it's really cool that, you know, you're talking about the frontier in Mm. this space and you've got all of these uni students on there manning the boat. How how cool is that? How does that feel for you to know that they are, uh, you know, having this real-life experience? Yeah, it's it's so exciting. It's really the only way that you can experience what that science is like, what doing science on a marine vessel is like. You know, and if we want to be training the next generation of marine scientists to keep Australia at the forefront of this sort of type of research, we need to be taking students to sea. We need to be putting them on these voyages and exposing them to the different types of techniques, the different sampling techniques, you know, what life at sea is like, because it is very challenging. And some of them absolutely loved it. You know, I think they all had an excellent time, but some of them just took to it like a duck to water and just, you know, you can see them going, this could be my career. You know, it's not an opportunity we can provide to them in any other way. On this voyage, we were lucky enough to have uh, 10 or so um, students from the University of Newcastle and, and from the University of Sydney as well. And the unique thing for me on this voyage was we most of those were undergraduate students, so doing their their bachelor program. This was uh, perhaps their first fieldwork experience, and what an amazing thing to be out on the national uh, research vessel, uh, experiencing marine research at, at its highest level uh, in your undergraduate degree. And so they were enthralled. They had their own room uh, on the on the on the vessel near our operations room and and they had a live feed of the seabed mapping uh, coming in on a big screen in there and of course when something cool came up they were they were really the first ones to to sort of uh, yell and hoot and <laughs> and get excited and 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 ask questions what's this what's this it's such a wonderful experience to be at sea with students for us as scientists, it's a really rare opportunity. We don't go to sea every year. You know, we go to sea maybe once every five to 10 years. And so they really took on board the value of the voyage. And so they took it really seriously. You know, they really took on that sense that what I am doing now matters and I've got to get it right. I got a really holistic picture of what it actually means to be a scientist and Mm. to do science and in such a frontier position of really pushing these boundaries, finding out new information. And that was absolutely affirming for me because, you know, not only do you have to just get on the boat, no, you you have to really like, you know, self-management, people manage, you have to project manage, you have to be self-started in yourself, motivated, be curious, ask the right questions, ask the wrong questions, like make mistakes, get through things, problem solve. Because, you know, especially as a student, we read, well, I I read a lot of science papers. Like, you know, we're writing so many reports, we're reading all of these papers. And I realised I'm seeing like one of these papers. Come to life. Yeah, like 
In the flesh. In the flesh. <laughs> and it's not just for one certain kind of person too. I think everyone has a picture of a scientist in a dated way um, in their mind when they talk about that. But talking about the boat in particular, the gals were on. Yeah. It's full of women. How good is that? Absolutely, yeah. I, I could not believe it. It was it was really, um, I think for me, it was the first moment of, okay, yeah, this this is something really good, like really affirming to actually see people like women do some pretty kick-ass things, like being the alternate chief scientist like Hannah was, it's really inspiring to be like, oh, if she can do that, well, I can do that. Like what's stopping me? And having that female representation where it probably even 10 years ago probably wouldn't have been there. It's yeah, pretty important and pretty cool to see that Hannah and Kendall are doing some pretty epic things. All the women are amazing. And, you know, Hannah is completely cultivating and has helped create this amazing culture of a place where, you know, young women feel safe to be like in studying science. And the more diversity is actually really the only way forward because when you have such diverse people, you really have different points of view. People are actually challenging each other, not just all going, actually, yes, I agree. Like the world must be round. Like, no, we we need to challenge each other and, and ask the right questions in science. So actually it can be a really important thing to have female you know, non-gender, non-binary people in the room as well. Students like Chloe and Michaela are leading the wave of women marching into STEM, thanks to researchers like Associate Professor Power and Dr Kinsella too. So what's next for the voyage? And just lastly, Hannah, where to from here? Everyone's back from the voyage. I'm sure they're still recovering. I'm sure you've still got a bit of jet lag from your night shift. Uh, What comes next? We've got hard drives and hard drives and hard drives full of data to analyse. So we've got all that remote sensing data, all that seafloor that we mapped, all the areas beneath the seafloor where we image down into the layers of sediment below the seafloor. And we've got tubs and tubs and tubs of sediment to analyse. So Diving into that is the next task. We've got um, a student working on it at the moment for her honours project at the uni. Um, She's working on one slide and a couple of samples and a small area of the seafloor we mapped, but there's so much more data that we collected. I think that project is looking at the results of about three or four days worth of data collection, and we've got five weeks worth of data collection to process. So it will take us several years to get through it all, but it's a really exciting several years to come. The work is not done when you step off that boat, Definitely not. It's kind of just beginning in a way. The potential for the seabed mapping data, so our our, new bathymetry of of previously unmapped seabed of the uh, the ocean floor, is, is very broad ranging. So for our research project, the recent voyage that we were on was was dedicated to to our work. So uh, we, you know, designed where we wanted to go and what features we wanted to map. And obviously, that was about answering our our key research questions about submarine landslides on the continental slope and their potential to generate uh, tsunamis. So in that sense, uh, of course, the the mapping data that we collected was very targeted at our research questions and and trying to get to the bottom of this tsunami potential. But the mapping in itself contributes to the national database of mapping the Australian marine territories. So this data all ends up being publicly available uh, on an online resource where people can go and browse and download the data 
and it gets used for a huge range of, of purposes. So modeling ocean processes, understanding uh, the, the, the substance of the seabed, sediments and all those types of things. So geological questions and also marine resource questions as well. So this type of mapping can help us plan uh, where we might want to put suitable locations for offshore wind farms, for example, and questions like that. Do you still get excited about what could be found out there? I get very excited. I find it absolutely fascinating and I think it's an amazing uh, privilege to be a part of this type of ocean discovery. Every time we go out, uh, whether it's on small boats or, or large ships uh, like the Investigator, we're mapping new areas of the Earth's surface uh, underwater that we've never seen before. Um, we find amazing things like preserved underwater dunes and beaches that would have been the coastline thousands of years ago. So every time we go out, it's it's a fascinating experience. And certainly when, when these things are coming in in real time on our screens on the ship, uh, we have, you know, great visualization of the, the mapping as we go, uh, you know, and, and, and perhaps a shipwreck pops up as well. We've, we've mapped a few uh, shipwrecks in our times in the past. So when you, you can't really take your eyes off it because you never know when something cool is going to pop up. Do you have like a message for young high schoolers or, you know, younger students that might think, you know, STEM might not be the place for me mm. because I am a young woman? What, do you have a message for them? Well, that was me. I never thought I'd be in STEM. Definitely don't limit yourselves if you, you don't need your potential until you actually give things a try. So it's always worth giving something a crack, even if you're not sure. Because, I mean, I never thought I'd go on a six-week research voyage, but um, I did and it was the most amazing experience of my life. There's no doubt that the experience all the students gained on the CSIRO RV Investigator will inform their careers for years to come. And thanks to the work they and the rest of the crew did, research all over the country, the world even, will be enriched by the data for decades to come. Soon, we'll have a deeper understanding of the potential cause of submarine landslides. And for research that requires muddy hands and dirty clothes, the potential of that data to protect coastal communities couldn't be clearer. And with collaboration being the backbone to this research, between the University of Newcastle, the University of Sydney, Geoscience Australia and the CSIRO, the voyage truly is an example of what can be done when some of the greatest minds work together. This podcast is a listener production brought to you in partnership with the University of Newcastle, hosted by me, Shani Wellington, produced by Kelsey Menzies, executive producer is Todd Stevens, with audio production by Kelly Fulston. Listener.